Welcome back to Take Two. I'm your host, Kamal Jones, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode. My guest today is my favorite person to follow on Instagram. She's on-air talent at 92.5XTU. She was a contestant on The Biggest Loser, and she has her own podcast called Why Are You Following Me? Please welcome Nicole Mahalik. Thank you for having me. First, let me say that. This is thank so you fun. for Thank you for coming on here. Yeah, usually I'm the one answering the question, asking the questions. So I like when I get to answer the questions. Um, so I grew up near the Poconos in Northeast PA in a very small town called Summit Hill, um, which literally um, is the, I mean, it's, I don't even know if there's a thousand people in it. There's no, there's no street lights um, or traffic lights. Like it's just stop signs. And I went to Catholic school my entire life from when I was kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. My mom taught at a Catholic school. Um, everybody was white and Catholic and, but I've always been a ham, right? Like <laughs> I was three and I would perform Twas the Night Before Christmas on my aunt's mantle in July. And I dance um, and, you know, I dance at the Gloria Dillon Studio of Dance and, uh, you know, just was always like, always had a big personality. In fact, it's really funny because a couple years, I want to say maybe like six or seven years ago, I had my parents' VHS tapes converted to DVDs, which I think is hilarious because now DVDs are obsolete basically, but it was all um, tapes from childhood. And the very first time that my parents got a video camera, it was those massive ass video cameras. It was my brother's baptism. And I was like five and a half. And I'm like, dad, put me on TV. Dad, let me see this Michael Jackson dance. And my dad's like, Nicole, we got to film your bro. We got to film your cousins. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just like who I always was. Being able to see how I was at five. I mean, like people tell me stories and I remember that. Like I remember in kindergarten, um, kind of a fun fact, my mom was a kindergarten teacher, but she had my brother. So I didn't have her as my kindergarten teacher. Our substitute at the time, I remember, I vividly remember her name was Mrs. Euler. And she was like, oh my God, Nicole, you're such a riot. And I didn't know what a riot (laughs) was at five, right? So this is just inherently who I am. And I credit a lot to my parents for encouraging me, you know, to know that, that this is, this is who I am. And, you know, I was always in like a million activity, activities. I was president of my student council when I was in when I was in high school, um, but I always loved entertainment. I was always obsessed with entertainment. I remember from senior year in high school, the local, local, local radio station, I'm talking like local, like in <laughs> like a small building was broadcasting live from McDonald's before one of our big games. And I was like, so excited that like, I went on the radio to be like, go Colts, you know, it was, <laughs> like, just my thing. So I always wanted to be in the city, you and I talked a little off mic about New York and I really wanted to go to New York. I used to go to New York every year with my mom and my aunt, my grand, my Grammy. And, um, I thought about NYU and then I was like, man, it just maybe is, does it seem a little daunting? Is it way too expensive? You know? And then I looked at like LaSalle and Temple and, um, St. Joe's and I was just like, eh, eh. and then I, I'll never forget the day that I went to visit Drexel. I walked on the main campus and you can see the skyline and like over the river. And I was like, yep, this is where I want to go. Like I just (laughs) wanted to be in the city. And, and so, and Drexel was like crappy at the time. Like it was a great school, but there was no campus. Like what Drexel is now, it's awesome. There's stores and restaurants. We had literally the 7-Eleven Drexel pizza and this one little like 
campus run with like rubber chicken sandwiches that was like attached to a dorm. Now it's like, save everything. But anyway, I loved it. And I love the co-op program, right? So I did my very first co-op was at the Valley Forge Convention and Visitors Bureau. And I lived over, I actually lived at Penn Grad Towers at the time because Drexel didn't have enough housing. And so I would drive from West Philly all the way to Plymouth meeting every day. And I would listen wow. to Q102 all the way there, all day at work, all the way home. I was obsessed. And coincidentally, a woman who worked at the Valley Forge Convention and Visitors Bureau, her daughter was married to the brother of the marketing director at Q102. So she would, she, she would see Lisa, she'd be like, you gotta meet this girl. She's obsessed with the radio station. And so Lisa told me to send my resume, resume in and they were hiring for like promotion crew where like you show up and like hand out t-shirts. But by the time my internship was over, that was already filled. So she was like, well, you, at that time in radio in the early 2000s, you didn't have to get credit. You can literally just like volunteer. So yeah. that's what I did. I basically like finished my co-op and then I was back at Drexel. Cause how Drexel works the co-op is like three months. I mean, six months you work and then six months you go to school. And so I was back in school full time. Um, and I just went and kind of just like volunteered at Q102 for a couple months. And then eventually I was on the promotion crew and like kind of the rest is history. I mean, I worked in the promo crew. I worked in the office, you know, I helped all different facets of, of the radio station. I did that all through college. And even though I, I graduated from Drexel, I always say I went to Q102 university <laughs> because I just spent so much time there and I loved it. And you know, everybody was, it was great. So after I graduated Drexel, I moved to Dallas, Texas. And I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I worked for my old boss as the assistant promotion director at KISS in Dallas. And I hated it. I hated Dallas, and I hated doing promotions. Um, I always wanted to be on the air, but I just wasn't really sure what that path was, you know, and I had this great opportunity to move, and I thought, why not? So I was there a year, and I ended up coming back, and then I I was like, well, I need a full-time job to have health benefits. So I started working as a receptionist nine to five. And then I went back on the promotion crew at Q102. And then I started doing part-time on air at FM 97 in Lancaster. Nice. So I used to drive every single weekend from Philly to Lancaster to do a shift, but like, it didn't feel like work to me. Like I loved it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like I just, it, it, Looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that. But then I just was like, oh, this is the best, you yeah, know? Yeah, when you're, when you're doing something that you love, like, it, it just doesn't feel like work. Right. And so eventually I got part-time on Q102. And then, then I went on The Biggest Loser. And so I was part-time in Q102, still working full-time as a receptionist, went on The Biggest Loser, came back, was still a receptionist, was still working part-time, and then eventually became full-time as Nick the Web Chick on Q102. And then I was doing mornings on my 106 that flipped to Mix 106. So I was doing Q102 plus, because it's all it was all iHeart at the time. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, still is. And, and then I was doing voice track and B104 in the Lehigh Valley. I became the director of social media. So I was doing all that. I was going to, you know, all the big iHeart events to help with social media. Um, and then, you know, in two years ago, um, the, if, so it was my 106 flipped to mix 106 flipped to real 106 and then real 106 flipped to the breeze, which is, it is now. 
when I flipped to the breeze, they got rid of the whole air staff. And so that's when I was let go. Radio is a lot like um, sports where like when like the regime changes, you kind of go with it. Yeah. And, and I knew it's kind of like a life lesson where like I knew that I needed to do something different, but I just mm -hmm. didn't know what that was. I love Philly so much. I didn't want to leave yeah. and I just wasn't sure. So God, the universe, whatever you believe in kind of gave me a kick in the ass. And, um, and, and then I got this opportunity to be at XTU and I never, ever in a million years thought that I'd be doing country. Um, in fact, like, Part of me was like, oh my God, are they going to be like all these gun-toting Trump supporters? Like, that's what I was worried about, right? Yeah, like, yeah that's what I would think. Right. So much of, of who I am is like, I'm, I like to say that I'm a bit of an activist. Like, I like to use my voice for mm -hmm. education and positivity. And, um, but it's amazing, the country world, what, what it has done, the transformation it has had, especially even in the last five years. And so many of the artists who have spoken out and have just been so open and it makes me love it even more plus the music's awesome like it literally yeah. it's just hit after hit it's so soulful it, it sounds like pop like i'm obsessed with it and it's one of those things that i never thought that it would be that way but it is and like all the dudes are hot which like totally helps me you know that helps too <laughs> although i should no, no no hold on let me take that back not all of them are hot and like i have a hard time with it because in in top 40 you usually like like an artist and it's like okay justin timberlake or harry styles or drake and you're just like obsessed because they're hot and like you see them in concert and you're like oh my god make out with me in country like i, I love luke combs but i don't want to make out with him ew you know what i mean like <laughs> it's it's been really hard i'm like what are these feel like I love his music, but I don't want to make out with him. Like, it's a total transition. But there's also hot dudes, too. The play like, Brett Eldridge, like, is amazing. Like, his songs are awesome. Thomas Rhett, Kane Brown. A lot of them get married young, though, you know? So they're more, yeah. more dealing with some dilfs, you know? <laughs> I, the other day, I was walking down the street, and I heard loving on you, and I thought of you. But, come, I mean, like... Immediately. It's like, such a good is, song. It's like... Talk about just, it's, the thing about Luke Combs is he's a white man with some soul. He got some soul in him. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> not like, do, I, I can't explain it. He just has this, like, his songs just have this, like, soulfulness that I love so much about it. But, like, yeah, when I heard, the first time I heard that song, he performed it before his album was even out on SNL in the winter. And I was like, this is a first listen hit. That's what we call on radio. First <laughs> listen hit. And sure enough, it was. It's pretty um, good. So to backtrack up to The Biggest Loser really quick. So struggle with my weight my whole life. Like literally when you look at pictures of me when I was like three and four, I was always the bigger kid, but I was always like super active, right? Like mm -hmm. I cheered, I danced, I played volleyball, I played basketball. And I just kind of like ate what my friends ate, did what my friends did, and they were just thinner than me. And so obviously then I went to college wasn't as active in college as I was obviously in high school and you're eating mozzarella cheese fries and mm -hmm, chicken mm -hmm. cheese steaks from Drexel pizza all right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, I'm just eating my, you know, we would, when I was on the promo crew at the radio station and we would go to Wendy's and all my friends would eat and I would eat and it just, they would stay one weight and I just wouldn't. And so I never really knew like what the deal was, you know, I mean, I knew I had hypothyroid, um, which slows your metabolism. But I was like, why is it this difficult? Like, why isn't it difficult for everybody else? Like, this is really frustrating. 
Um, and so I never watched The Biggest Loser before. And one day I was living in um, Bella Vista at the time at 10th and Montrose. And I just like had the TV on and just so happened a commercial popped up and they're like, if you think that you could be on season three of The Biggest Loser, submit your video now. And I was like, mm, well, I'm a ham. I want to be on TV and I need to lose weight. So like, this seems perfect. I'll so I did this whole video of me. I was a receptionist at the time. So it was like me as a receptionist and me as part-time on the radio station and how, you know, I have, I'm so busy all the time. And you know, my main responsibility, you know, receptionist is the candy dish. And then when you come home, we have a menu drawer, which is like hoagies and cheesesteaks and fries. And then, so I did this whole thing. And then I was like, all right, to prove to you, I'm going to do Biggest Loser. I'm going to run up the Rocky steps. And so I started like running up the art museum steps. And then like to be, to do a bit, I started crawling and I was like, please help me make it to the top. Um, and so I, I said, tasty cakes, soft pretzels and takeout menus and printed out a piece of paper and put confetti in it and said, Biggest Loser, I, you know, I surrender um, these, please pick me. And so it was in 2000, that was 2005, right? Yeah, it was 2005, which is crazy. So it was a DVD, like my, my friend who was amazing, edited it, put it in a DVD, sent it off. Nice. Then in like January of 2000, 2006, I got a call saying like they want more information and they're going to send me an email. They want more pictures. And like, iPhones weren't a thing then. So like my poor mother had to like go to CVS and scan photos from like when I was in high school, like it was crazy. And so then I didn't hear anything. And I was like, well, oh, all right. So fast forward to January, no, February of 2007. So a whole year and a month later, oh. I'm sitting on my couch and I get this random phone call that says, congratulations, you're a semi-fine. Well, they were like, hi, is this Nicole? And I, they were like, Nicole Machalk. I'm like, Mahalik, the C silent. No <laughs> one gets my last name right, which is fine. And, uh, and I said, yeah, and they're like, congratulations, you're a semi-finalist for season four, The Biggest Loser. You have to drive to either Norfolk, Norfolk Virginia or Columbus, Ohio for an on-camera interview. And I was like, oh, what? So they kept all my stuff from the previous year. And so then me and my two best friends drove all the way to Norfolk, Virginia, and stayed at the double tree, delicious warm cookies. Yum. And uh, I did this on-camera interview and, and then literally like probably like two weeks went by and then it was like tons of emails, tons of calls, like send pictures of when you were eight. Can you swim? Do you have tattoos? Like all this crazy stuff. And then I'll never, it was like, talk about poetic. So it was a Friday night, me and all my friends went to cheeseburger in paradise at the Oxford Valley Mall. <laughs> on a Friday night and it's like nine o'clock at night. We're in the parking lot and my phone rings and they're like, hi, you know, this is Nicole's whoever from the biggest loser. Uh, congratulations. You're a finalist. We're flying you out in three weeks. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm at cheeseburger in paradise. And I get the call that I'm a finalist for the biggest loser. <laughs> like it's like a rom-com, you know what I mean? <laughs> so they fly you out and you had to pack like you were going to be there for the four months. So this was April of 07. And so they fly you out like you're and you're they're like, you need to pack for like, you're going to be there for the whole time. But they flew yes. out 32 people and only 18 people made the show. So you're sequestered for a week. And so you're literally locked in your hotel room. Like you don't have oh, a no. And so you literally get a knock at the door and they're like, okay, we're going to the doctors. Okay. You're going to meet with the NBC executives. Okay. You have to fill out this 
500 page personality quiz. Okay. Now you're going to meet with the psychiatrist. We did. And we weren't, when we would see other contestants, we weren't allowed to talk to them because they wanted to wait until we were on camera. So we like could share our stories. I see. To make it like more authentic. Yeah. So you would like see somebody one day and wouldn't see them the, the next because you like didn't know what happened to them. And then eventually it was 11 o'clock at night and we had to go to this, you know, like a conference room in the hotel and JD Roth, who's actually from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, who is one of the creators. Um, he was like, congratulations. You are season um, four of the biggest loser from this point forward. Your life will forever be defined as before the biggest loser and after. And I remember thinking like, first of all, I was obviously insanely excited, but I was like, hmm. screw you, dude. Like, and it's so true. <laughs> like I, oh, that's how I define myself. It's like before and after it's really crazy, but it was 11 o'clock at night. It was 2 AM here. So they're like, you have an hour to like call who you need to call and we're going to come and collect all your stuff. So I like ran back to the hotel room, call my parents. They're obviously sleeping. I was like, no idea when I'll talk to you again. Love you. Call my best friends send an email to my bosses. Now they knew only like a handful of people knew what I was doing. And I just need to give a shout out to Sparks because the company that I was full time with at the you know, as a receptionist, like they were so phenomenal for me. Like nice. they were the most incredible people. And um, I was supposed to be in two weddings. My friend Corinne's wedding, my friend Sam's wedding, had to email them. No idea if I'll, like, if I'm going to make your wedding, like love you, see you. And then Sure enough, there was a knock at the door and I had to give like my computer, my wallet, my purse, my phone, everything. 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 And I remember just like sitting there being like, this is crazy. crazy. Well, I guess and at this time there was no like Twitter and- There wasn't even really Facebook. Really Facebook like, or Facebook like that. just had, was a thing for like some college kids. We had yeah. MySpace. Which so is I guess that's a little bit easier because I would struggle with that. I think yeah. that's what I would struggle with. Yeah, I think I think probably it was easier then. Although I feel like now maybe the break would be would be welcome, welcomed, you know, like Yeah. Yeah. The it, it's just it's so interesting cuz like sometimes I feel like it happened like 2 years ago and it was really 13 years, which is just insane <laughs> to think it's been that long. Um but so yeah, and it was listen it was the most incredible experience. I mean, I was, I made it the four months. I mean, I got voted off a week before the, the finals. So there was 14, wow. ep, there was 14 episodes and I got voted off episode 13. So how it works is we were there from April until August in LA. And then you come home and you train for the finale. And then you go back to LA in December for the finale. Um, and I had the best time. I mean, I was single and like in LA on TV, losing weight. I was having, I had a showmance on the show. They didn't nice. show it, um, but I was having the best time. And like, I guess for a good month, maybe six weeks, we didn't have any phone calls. And then eventually we got one phone call a week for 15 minutes. And, but like, again, I would talk to my parents for like seven minutes and then I would talk to a friend and I would be like, I'm great. See ya. I love ya. You yeah. know what I mean? Like for me, it was just like, this is the best. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that like our season was the only season where it was, it was back to campus. So we were in this really weird location that was like part of California state university. And we were, it was three teams that year as a red team, blue team, black team. And we were literally in one room. So the blue team was in one room with six twin beds. 
the black team was in one room oh with my God. The six twin beds. The red team was – and, like, the ba- it, the bathrooms were, like, a locker room. <laughs> like, when I think back on it now, I'm like, oh, my God. But I was just, like, so excited to be there. Yeah. I didn't care. But when I think back, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this was crazy. And <laughs> my friend Holly, who was on the show with me, we're still really, really close. And we talk all the time. She lives in LA. She actually is from Arizona and was a teacher and from Arizona was a teacher and she left to go be a reality producer. So she works in reality TV now. Nice. But we, she was saying like, we didn't realize the magnitude of how big of a deal it was that we were on that show. Because when you think back to 2007, like Netflix didn't exist, Amazon prime, Hulu, there wasn't as many channels. None of the socials exist. Streaming didn't exist. We were prime time television yeah. on Tuesday night on NBC mm-hmm. at 8 p.m. She was like, we were the Bachelor and Bachelorettes. Yeah. And my like, my and family. Like, oh, my God. I'm I, like, it, that was lost on me for a minute. And now thinking back on it, I was like, if we, if it was now, like with social media and like how big and the numbers that show pulled, like, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. My family watched that show religiously. I was so young at the time. I didn't really know much. I mean, I knew exactly what the show was about, but like I wasn't into it. But like my parents were into it. Like into, into it. it. Yeah. People were obsessed with it. And the interesting thing though is, is what we know now about health and fitness and just all around wellness compared to then is completely different, right? Mm-hmm. Like what we knew then was don't eat, starve yourself, work out. And it's really interesting. I go to this really amazing doctor at Jefferson. It's part of the Women's Integrative Center. And she was like, I'm telling you, the show ruined your metabolism. She was like, it was just, it was, no one's supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. And then literally like five months later, the National Institute of Health studied season eight and they, and the New York Times produced this entire study of how the show basically ruined our metabolisms because it was so drastic. We were so overworked. We were so underfed. But it, I don't necessarily think that the show did it. That's what that's what we just thought was what we you were healthy. supposed to do at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was just they. You know they tried to bring the show back last year, but they didn't do it in a way that they could have. You know the whole other side of it is just the acceptance of everybody's body is different too, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's so much. And my doctor, who's awesome, she was like, "This country's obsessed obsessed with weight, and we should be obsessed with health." Yeah. And health and weight are not one and the same. Mm-hmm. Is that somebody invented the BMI and somebody all of a sudden said, oh, being fat is bad. And, but there's a lot of skinny people that are way unhealthy, yeah. you know? And like, yeah. sure, there's a lot of overweight people who eat like shit and don't work out and drink a ton of soda and eat a lot of sugar and you're not healthy. But there's a lot of skinny people that do that too. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what I try to say all the time. Like, you do understand, right, that there are a lot of thin people that are super unhealthy that are thin just because of their genetics. And there's other people who are not, who are healthy and are heavier because of their genetics. Yeah. You know? And so it's hard because we, I think we're slowly getting there, but I mean, I still struggle with it all the time. You know, like I still am like, I'm not happy with my weight and it's, it's really difficult to, Um, be in that space where like, I love who I am, but I still like, I'm like, oh, well, I do want to still lose weight, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, um, 
I think that eventually we're going to get to a space where it's like, let's just really focus on health. Let's move 30 minutes a day. And there's always going to be those people who want to do triathlons and who are those Uber athletes. Right. But I think the encouragement should be like, yes, we do need to eat vegetables Mm -hmm. as a priority. And we do need to not eat sugar as much, right? Like focus on the health part of it and the overall wellness. Um, And so, and then just like not be fat phobic in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think a lot of people for, for whatever it is. And it's also like really does go back to birth and like what you see on the, the screen and what mm-hmm. you see in magazines and what you see online where it's like, if, if you're seeing, you know, let's be honest, like the standard beauty in America is still tall, skinny, and blonde. Do you know yep. what I mean? Like that's yep. because that's what's, I mean, it's Barbie. It's what it's been pushed out in this country for a hundred years. So until that changes until children are born and like, as soon as they can open their eyes and they're consumed with a diversity of what beauty is, mm-hmm. then people's minds will, cause that's why people, see somebody that's attractive and be like, oh, that's attractive because yeah. that's you're born being told is attractive, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm very, you know, I try to be as transparent as I am because I do feel blessed that I, that I have a voice and a, and a bit of a platform where I talk about it and I'm doing this weight loss endorsement for work now. And I told the account executive, I was like, listen, um, I don't want to go on the radio and tell people they have to lose weight. Like I gained 15 mm-hmm. pounds in quarantine. That's not okay. I was going to Trader Joe's buying, you know, sugar, you know, ginger snaps and, you know, cookie butter ice cream. Like I shouldn't have been doing that with my metabolism and, and my hypothyroid, like I gained weight really, really fast. And so for me, I wanted to shed some pounds, but it doesn't mean I don't love myself, you know? So, yeah. I, and, and she like was totally cool with that. I was like, I don't want to tell people they need to lose weight. Cause I think you have to be responsible about it. For me, it's like, I want to focus on vegetables and fruits mm-hmm. and eating whole grains. And like, no, you don't need to have ice cream once a week. Like that's not something that I need to do, you know? Um, and so it's hard because you don't want to tell people, to be something that they're not comfortable with, but you still want to focus on the health side of things, Uh, which is, and let's be honest, like the diet industry is a trillion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a tweet. I want to say it was like two years ago. And it was one of those like moments where it was like the beauty industry has made trillions of dollars telling women they're not good enough. And I was like, whole they have shit. It's crazy. your lashes aren't long enough. Your skin isn't smooth enough. Your skin's not light. It's like, you look for, you know, you look at black people where it's like, your skin should be lighter. And then you look at white people. It's like, but your skin should be darker. Like here's self tan, right? Your hair needs to be straight. Your hair shouldn't be curly, but if it is curly, here's how to smooth out. You know, here's how to plump your lips. Here's how to smooth your, it's like, Oh my God. Like it's, it's, it it has been brainwashing people Mm -hmm. for hundreds of, and I was just like, this is crazy. And I'm like, how did, but it's been so normal that you don't realize that that's what it is, you know? Yeah. I, yesterday I actually saw something where there was like this woman that was getting like something done to her neck yeah, to make it smaller, to make it slimmer. And I was right. like, that's the smallest. There's not that much of a difference, but also yeah. why, like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Like, why are we? 
like what's what's wrong with the way that it looks right now you know and that's what's promoted i think all over social media yeah oh yeah and i like you know look at the things that like the people that are really famous these days and what are they promoting for the everyday person and, and it's not realistic at all at all especially when they they have the money to to get the work done they have the money yeah. to change their body in a way that really isn't normal um and it's yeah. not afforded to the everyday person well so one of my friends just shared a picture of j-lo i mean j-lo's 51 years old and they and she was like what how and it's like her job is to be j-lo so mm-hmm. like of course she looks like that you know yeah um, now, in JLo's defense, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't do drugs, she doesn't drink. So she does really do focus on the wellness, right? And Which the health great. part of, of who she is. And genetics obviously plays a role, but it's fascinating. But I do think it goes back to something as simple as like wanting to be loved and accepted. And, and because the standard of beauty is this, people think to be loved and accepted, they have to change who they are, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, it, and like... To be deep, it really, it, it has a lot to do with women because it goes back to the fact that we live still in a very patriarch, misogynistic society and like women want to be accepted by men. And so they feel like this is what I have to do to change who I am to be accepted. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of layers. Yeah. It's a lot of layers. Yeah. You know? um, so, and social media is really interesting because I feel like so do you know Jennifer Weiner, who she's an author? She does a lot of like um, chick lit rom-com books. So you probably are like, no, um, who is no, she? No, I don't, but, but look her up. Cause she lives I'll in look her up for sure. She had a lot of bestsellers. Um, and she put out a book this summer called big summer. And she has a lot of characters that are overweight and this, this whole book. And it's really good. And there was a twist in it that I didn't expect to happen, but she has a line in the book that she talked about, you know, a lot of people have an issue with social media. Cause she's like, but the, the good thing about social media, it has given everybody a voice. It's no longer a bunch of rich white men sitting in a room deciding how mm-hmm. everything should be. And I was like, yes. So a lot of people come down on social media and even like with what's going on in the country, I've even said that like people hate social media. I think it showed me who people are. Yeah. You know, like I was friends with people I thought so, but then all of a sudden, like, I really saw how they thought and felt. And I was like, well, I don't want, I don't want to be friends with somebody who thinks about that, you know? And the whole, like, the difference of opinion. Well, not really. A difference of opinion is if you want to talk about what to do with federal funding, it's not mm-hmm. black, black lives matter is not a difference of opinion. You know what I mean? And so the beauty of social media is that it does give the average person a voice. It has made people say, Hey, there are trans people in this world there are non-binary people in this world. Being fat is okay, you know? And the problem is, is that people on the other side, it could be, you have to be beautiful. The picture has to be the best. Yeah. So like it is a polar, it's a polarizing space, but there is some good to it. You know, I do think that like the acceptance, like there's so many plus size bloggers and Instagram accounts that like have shown like you could be fashionable and still Mm -hmm. not be a size eight. That is an amazing part of social media, you know, but Mm -hmm. then you have the trolls. So like it's polarizing, but there are really good, there are really good points to it. And to be honest, 
it's a great space for education too. It really know? is. Um, you, you spoke about, you know, what's happening in the country right now. And you had about, there was a meme that you, not a meme. There was something that you posted that said, um, the worst thing about the Trump presidency isn't what we learned about Trump. It's what we've learned about our friends. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I heard you talk about like someone you thought was a friend <laughs> until you found out what they, you know, thought about. Yeah. I lost a friend of almost 20 years. Um, that friend of yours, I like went to their page. Insane. Right. And I like, it was when the Walter Wallace shooting happened yeah. here in Philly. And I was like, what yeah. are you thinking? And I, I was like, you're wrong. I messaged, you're wrong. Like, this is, the city is not on fire. Correct. Um, and they blocked me. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of um, course the thing that's really interesting um, about that situation in particular is that we became friends when I was an intern and, you know, part-time in the promotion crew. We were much younger. And politics was that thing that no one talked about right Mm -hmm. or if you did it was it was you know and i always say you know i was like not too many people more people need to to speak about the two-party system ultimately was republicans were rich white men and democrats were middle-class white men Mm -hmm. it was white men who worked in the coal mines and who worked at a plant and who worked at a warehouse but it was still white men and obviously republicans was the grand old party it was it was all the the old money right Mm -hmm. but what happened was over time and especially when obama became president everybody who wasn't a white male was like yo we're americans too like we've been (laughs) living here like doing our thing like we deserve a voice yeah i think it was the perfect storm of like obama became president and social media really blew mm-hmm. up, right? It was yeah. too So it was Facebook, Twitter, and it all kind of happened, YouTube, it all kind of happened at the same time. And it gave the average person a voice. Yes. And so the Democrats then became the party of the social movement. It became the voice of those who for a long time didn't have a voice. Yeah. And, and then what happened was, and I use where I grew up as an example, where I grew up, it's a very quintessential white blue collar existence. And so it's really interesting when you look at where I grew up, it's Carbon County. And so when you look at Obama in 2008 and 2012, like 75 and 76% voted for Obama. But then you look at 2016 and 2020, 73 and 74% voted for Trump. So like it, it, it's amazing how it just kind of flipped. Right. And so Trump made these blue collar white people obsessed with him because he mm-hmm. told them that he cared about them, which he does not care about you. He has a gold fucking toilet that overlooks all the minions in Manhattan. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he yeah. literally <laughs> takes a shit in a gold toilet <laughs> and flushes down. Like, hello. <laughs> so but I'm listen, I'm very, very, very blessed that like my family, my parents, my aunts, my brother, majority of my friends were all on the wavelength and like to be able to, and it's, you know, and I get emotional about it because it's like my parents are, you know, they literally live where they grew up and you know, they traveled a little bit, but it's not like they're these amazing world traveler scholars. They're just, I always say like they're quintessential with like 
loving Christians are supposed to be, you know, it's like, yeah. you accept everybody. And, you know, it's very much like, they're just so aware of, you know, even like in, I remember in the winter time, I was probably like January or February. So this is before all this even happened. My dad watched green book, which wasn't even historically factual, but it's, yeah, it was like right before the, the Oscars. Yeah. And my dad was just like, so he was just like, you know, no one talked, this was, again, this is like January, February. My dad was like, no one talks enough about the fact that the, the worst people that were treated in this country are black people. Like there's no one that's been treated worse. And like, he's just so aware of like what has happened. And I just mm -hmm. feel very grateful that that's who I grew up as my parents. You know what I mean? So yeah. people ask me like, how are you this person? And I was like, well, number one, I'm just, I just think inherently who I am, I'm just very open-minded. And so, and I ask a shit ton of questions. And so when I meet people who, when I meet somebody who isn't like me, I want to know about their life. Tell me what it was like where you were. Tell me what you've been through. Tell me about your religion. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I've just always been that type of person. And so I feel like I have the, I could kind of pay it forward and kind of back to the friendship that I lost you know, we really didn't talk a lot about politics um, because it wasn't something people talked about, right? Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, the hot topics that, that happened. And what really showed, I think, through the pandemic and through, you know, kind of George Floyd, obviously there were so many issues before that, but George Floyd kind of took it to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like go back to Trayvon Martin, right? And, but it's the fact that people were more worried about like a target being looted than they yeah. were people losing their life. Yeah. And I was getting so frustrated. I was like, Hey, Karen, they're not coming to your house in Lansdale for your live, laugh, <laughs> love sign. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I said, this, I was talking about it with somebody at work and I was like, do you think that they want to loot the target? Do you think they want to loot the footlocker? Don't you think that they would want to be in their $1.8 million home in a comfy bed with 10 pairs of Nike shoes to choose from playing their Xbox, being able to have whatever snack they want? Like right. they don't like you get right. That like, first of all, no one is talking enough about the fact that majority of these, these riots and this looting were started by like secret internet, you know, crazy groups. Number mm -hmm. one. And then it just escalated. But let's just say for the racist white person's sake that they think that it's actually like a black kid from West Philly moving <laughs> a footlocker. Do you think they want to do that? Like, yeah, they, they like, they don't have. Yeah. The they're going gonna... to get from the footlocker from the target are the things that quite essentially you people already have. And like, they they can afford to have it. These people can't afford to have these things. It was like they major. I mean, the have you ever seen the um? It's not Dateline. What the hell is it called? What's the Dateline of ABC? Um, uh, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Diane Sawyer did about the school principal from Strawberry Mansion. Yeah, yeah. And she spoke the women's conference and have been has become this advocate and that initial special where they really showed these, these, these kids who didn't have beds who were sleeping on mattresses on the floor. And it's like, you know, and, and I could, I cry every time I think about it where she said, you know, I tell them I love them every day. Cause sometimes that's the only time they hear it. And mm -hmm. it's like, 
that is the reality. Do you know what that I mean? The it's, yeah. it's, it's the reality of, and, I, and one of my favorite moments from the initial riots, I mean, not, I, I don't want to say favorite moments, but so in my building, my best friend lives in my building and his um, apartment overlooks the alley. And so there was a, there was a sneaker store, a couple um, storefronts down. And so people were like running in the front and coming out the alley. And there's this old homeless guy that lives out in the alley. And so this guy has all these sneakers in his hand and stopped and was like, Hey man, what's your size? <laughs> and he's like, um, nine and a half. And we're watching from the window and the, and the guy hands him these sneakers and the homeless guy opens them. He goes, nah, I don't like those. Thanks. And like gives them back. And I was like, <laughs> this is so Philly. It's like that is Robin hood. It's like, you know, stealing from corporate and like giving to the homeless guy. But like Philly's so Philly that he's like, eh, I don't like these brand new sneakers. You can just take them back. And I'm like, this is so great. But I'm like, so what they sell these sneakers on eBay for a hundred bucks and they have like an extra hundred bucks to like go to Chick-fil-A. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. obviously like I'm not ever going to promote looting, but like, I get it. I get mm -hmm. the despair. I get the anguish. I get the anger. I get the frustration. And you know, it's like, and there was something, um, you know, some, uh, it was a friend, one of my best friends, friends posted about, you know, the, the looting this last time around. And I commented, I was like, have you ever been to West or North Philly? Have you ever actually talked to people who live there who understand the despair of the neighborhood and what is happening? And like, of course not. Of course they don't know. Unless one woman commented who actually works um, in the school district. And she's like, I, you know, she, you know, she's like, I've worked in Strawberry Mansion. I've worked at, in West Oak Lane. And I promise you that every single person who lives there, it knows exactly what's going on and tries every mm -hmm. day to try to change it. And it's like, exact, like it's so yeah. much deeper than just like, don't loot. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's decades and decades and decades of just segregation and just being treated differently and not having the resources. And like, it makes me, it makes me want to loot because I get yeah. so mad. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah how do you not see the layers of this? It's not as simple as like, yeah, of course looting isn't good, but like, I get why people, why I get the frustration that it happens. And, and back to my friend that I lost, like somebody that, that also knew her said to me who worked with her for years also said, you know, she has no empathy. And I go, and I really looked back and I go, holy shit. Like I looked at all different situations and I yeah. realized, she actually doesn't have any empathy because that is ultimately what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know what it's like to be a black man, but I have the empathy of it must be fucking hard. And I want to listen to your stories and try to understand the best way that I can. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I don't know why that's so hard for some people. I don't know if it's, if it's literally, they, they don't have the mental capacity. Like they don't have the education. Not, I don't, they don't have the, the intelligence to do it. Or if it's that, you know, they're just so close. I, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I would like to talk to maybe a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist that specializes mm -hmm. in that. Um, there is a book that somebody told me to read and it's this woman who was from Berkeley and went into Louisiana and interviewed all these people that were big Trump supporters. And it was all about like why people vote against the cause and like what they actually yeah. need. Um, and so I want to read that because like that to me is very fascinating, like the psychology behind it, the psychology of yeah. like, you know, the fact that 
you as a black man from West Philly messaging her saying like, you're wrong. Like, this is what's actually happening. And instead of being like, wait, let me think about this. I'm just going to mm-hmm. block you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, I was just like, like, you have this perfect opportunity right now to talk to someone that's dealing, that's in this situation. In it, who, in it. Who's in it. And then you don't even want to, you don't want to talk to them. Right. And I, it, talking about something can literally change your mind about the the topic or yeah the situation that you're you have such a strong opinion on yeah but you haven't even taken the opportunity to even think about it really i know and and i try that too even from the other side even from people who i you know i i I really do hate somebody one of my friends said like the whole um difference of opinion it doesn't it's a very outdated thought process because it doesn't exist anymore um and that you can say that like i i like i said like you can say that for federal funding i think federal funding should be for education other people think it should go to the defense fund even even gun control right like i don't like guns but i understand people are obsessed with them and so i feel like Mm -hmm. there's a conversation and a compromise and like a difference of opinion on how to like get to that space like i even right but like when there, when there's so many issues about just rights and people's lives and people refuse to try to like understand it, mm-hmm. um, I, it's just really, really difficult for me. It's difficult for me that people are just so closed off from the ideas of understanding why, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and like I said, like I try even people who don't like, so one of my friends, he's one of my brother's best friends. He works for Senator Udacek from Pennsylvania. And they do a lot of stuff in like Northeastern PA. And talking to him is really interesting because you are talking to a lot of people that live there that, you know, they have no industry. The schools are running out of money. So to them, when they see the news that people only care about what's happening in West Philly, they feel forgotten about. Yeah. And so then it's like, trying to teach these like old school white people that like, you're not being forgotten about. Like we're trying to do both. You know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah. I care about you, but like systemic racism is also very real. So like mm-hmm. we're trying to tackle both. And so it's basically like, cause I really, there's a lot of people that has said to me, like you should run for office. But the problem I have is that I don't want to ask rich people for money and then be indebted <laughs> to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I want to be independently wealthy and just be able to run and just be able to like, but I do want to say to people, like, what are you so scared of? Like, let's talk about this. Like, why are you so angry? Like, let's talk about it. You know, and, and sometimes like people just don't know how to like think deeper. And so I don't know. It's interesting because like, I love pop culture so much and I love entertainment and I, and I love that, but I also just feel like I have to just speak about other things too, you know? Yeah. I mean, so I went to school in Strawberry Mansion for oh, elementary wow. school, for okay. elementary school. But I was my, like my grandmother, she was a secretary at the school. You know, I went to another middle school that wasn't in Strawberry Mansion. Yeah. I went to high school in Center City, Philadelphia. Where'd you go to high school? I went to SLA. It's right. It was right near uh, Trader Joe's, right under the underpass. Did they close on, it? On Arch. They, it, they got moved to share a building. What does it stand for, SLA? Uh, Science Leadership Academy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so it got moved to Benjamin Franklin High School, so oh on God. like Broad Spring Garden. Yeah. Which is like a whole nother like issue. But you know, when I the 2020 special about like the kids that went to to Strawberry Mansion High, I'm like, these are kids that like went to my elementary school. Like some of these kids went to elementary school with me and I had no idea that that was their life. Their life. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate to like grow up with like a great loving family. Yeah. Had things and like, we aren't rich. We're just making it, you know, yeah. through life. And I had no idea that that was what was happening. But what I did know is that these people aren't bad people. You know, these are literally just people yeah. who have, who don't have the opportunities. I, I don't even know how I came this far. Cause like, I guess a lot of the people in, the, in my elementary school, when I look back, like they, aren't in college they yeah you know are still sort of in that same neighborhood yeah and there's nothing wrong i think with being in that same neighborhood it's just we don't like our city isn't funding those neighborhoods to be better right um yeah and i think that that's so such big part of the conversation one of my really good friends works at king um and which is just you know it's not as it wasn't as bad as strawberry mansion but it's up there and I, and I said, and she grew up in East Oak Lane and I always ask her, um, she lives in King of Prussia now and her husband's a chemical engineer and I'm always like, you're the Obama's the King of Prussia. <laughs> and they have a Portuguese water dog. I make fun of her, but I'm like, Liz, like, what do we do? Like, how do we fix it? Cause I think that that's something that like, I, I try to be so solution-based at times, you know, it's like, where do you start? You know, when she, and, and then one of my best friends is a school counselor at Taggart Elementary, which is in South Philly. And it, mm-hmm. that's so diverse. I mean, there's so many different, you know, um, Muslim and Cantonese and Chinese and black. It's, it's just such a melting pot. But when she started there in 2012, she had a support system of eight. So there was, you know, she had somebody that worked with parents and helped them with their resumes. And they had, you know, English as a second language, two people that worked with kids. They, it, they just had this massive support system. Guess what? All those people have been laid off and now it's her and it's a disaster and so when you look at something like that where it really does go back to funding and it goes back to it makes me insane where i'm like you go to bucks county and you literally have kids getting free macbooks and then you go to taggart and there's you know my best friend is spending money to buy school supplies for the kids i was like how is this okay like those kids from jump from kindergarten like it is so rare. We're like, you, you look at, okay, you went to Strawberry Mansion Elementary School and then you look at, you know, whatever the elementary school is in Bucks County, one of the Bucks County elementary schools. And it's like, you and maybe one other person have quote unquote made it out, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you look in Bucks County, there's only two people that did it, yeah, right? Yeah. 5% mm-hmm. probably went to college and because they're just ahead, we're like, in your situation, you're the exception. Yeah. In a, in a predominantly wealthy white area, the exception is the two people who didn't make it, who got into drugs or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's where it starts. Like the fact that education just isn't a priority, I think is just insane to me. It's insane. Um, one of my friends started a nonprofit called Urbed. Okay. Um, and it's just, it's a student run organization here in the city. I, I do some work for them as well. 
um, just advocating for fair funding and just better schools in the city, yeah. which we shouldn't need a, a nonprofit to, to do this yes. run by students to tell us to like fund our schools. I know properly. that's why like, I just am so indebted and grateful to extreme activists because they always have changed the course of history, right? They're the ones that like are cool with like living in a house with 12 people and like making no money, like working at a coffee shop because like they want to change the course of the world. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, I just respect that so much because they're fighting for something that it took 20 years to change. You know, like I think of even, you know, gay marriage to think what those people went through at Stonewall, Mm -hmm. you know, and like what people went through 50, 60 years ago and how long it takes for progress. And I always really respect the people who just, and I guess, you know, go kind of goes back to my therapist always talks about how there's five factors that make up a personality and like you inherently are who you are. So it's like, you're always going to have those people who are the boots on the ground people, you know what I mean? And then you have people who, you know, bring it to light. And, and so I, I just think that unfortunately it takes people so much time, but there's been a, so many great messages I've got. I got one message. It was from the 62 year old guy who loves listening to XTU. And he said, you know, you really made me think differently in a lot of ways. Like I'm still trying to process it all, but I still have thinking about it. And I was like, that's all, that's all. That's that's all. Yeah. And, and it's great coming from you. You know, you do have that platform, especially now that you're on country radio, I think when you, the audience that you think, I guess the audience that you think that you expect, like you said earlier, you expect it, it to be. It's 50-50, probably and, it's more 55-45 that leans still more conservative. Yeah, but I even, don't. even then that 45 or that 55%, like you still have that platform to, even if it's just one person that Correct. you change their Correct. mind. And when- when the initial riots were happening back in June, I was like, I have to address this. And so the way that I did it on air, because there are a lot of times I want to yell and scream and tell everybody they're, you know, you're all dumb and racist. You know what I mean? Like there, I do get the anger part of me, but I know that that's, I'm intelligent enough to know that that's not effective. And it's more effective when you lead by kindness and education, you know? Yeah. So the way, what I keep telling people is I feel very blessed that we as humans have these incredible minds that you could literally learn something every second of the day and never reach capacity. And we have these incredible hearts that you can love something every minute of the day and never reach capacity. And so even though you might have not known something yesterday, you now know it today. And that's an incredible thing. Yeah. And and I think that to me, that was a way of saying people, you might not understand this now, but like you have the brain power to, to do, to understand it. And so that was kind of my way of, of get, and I like try to, you know, keep saying that message over and over again. Like, I know you may not understand it, but you have the ability to learn it, you know? Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. This was so great. I love that. This was great. Thank you all so much for joining me on this episode of Take Two. Again, I'm your host, Kamel Jones. See you next time. Bye.